Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby, and the next big recession is our subject today. 1975, 1982, 1991, 2009, four big recessions, add the dot-com bomb in 2000. And we've had a significant global economic downturn every seven to nine years. So on that basis alone, we're due another one, even though it doesn't feel like we've fully recovered from the last one. So are we ready for the next big one? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So Italy is in recession. Turkey is likely to be. Germany is as close to it as you can get. And in the United States, the National Association for Business Economists has surveyed their members and the majority predict a US recession by 2021. Uh, Here in the UK, well, we've been enjoying quarterly growth around 0.5% a year. That's now below 0.2% a a quarter. Uh, So not quite a recession, but maybe we're heading that way too. In fact, look a little uh, over a year ago back and the European Union as a whole was seeing quarterly GDP growth around 0.6% per quarter. Now it's down to 0.2%. And what of Australia? Well, it's been seeing some of the highest growth in the Western world, over 1% growth in the first quarter of 2018. But could it be heading for a recession too? It seems like right now they're a long way from it. So Steve, the world economy, it seemed to be traveling all right in the early part of 2018. Now recession Seems to be breaking out all over the place. What's changed? Some would argue uh, it's Donald Trump's mm. trade spat with China that has no, a lot, I, lot to do I with think it. it. I think that's about as relevant as the uh, smooths were with the uh, tariffs back in 1930, 31 or 32. The crisis was caused by the collapse of the stock market and the levels of private debt back then. And then the smooths were what I think just was a sort of a side effect, which everybody who doesn't want to admit the role of credit blame, but it's fundamentally the credit dynamics that caused the Great Depression. And we're just in a similar aftermath. And it's not realised by most of the policymakers. So this is one reason I, when I wrote, uh, can we avoid another financial crisis? Uh, the way that I characterised the world was breaking it into two types of nations. The walking dead of debt, who already had a debt crisis and were sort of stumbling on afterwards, and the zombies to be, which were countries like Australia in particular, also Canada, uh, which avoided the crisis back in 2008, but uh, set themselves up for a not necessarily a bigger one, but a one with a bigger level of private debt when it finally bursts by borrowing their way through the last crisis. And yet, as I said in that introduction, Australia seems to be the furthest from it in that they've got, you know, growth so much higher than uh, most other parts of the world. You know, obviously ignore China, but of the Western world, they, you know, they've got higher growth than most at the moment. Yeah, but that was the same state for America before 2007. Yeah. When these things turn, and this is actually a very very nice piece of work I saw done by some uh, a guy who's a a, um, stock market analyst using my ideas to make a prediction uh, about when turning points would occur in the stock market. And what he did was take something that I've um, 
I've uh, done the theoretical work and what I haven't tried to practically imply it. And that's the impact of changing distribution of income and when a, when a, when a boom and a slump will occur. And the basic story is that when you have wage growth, um, starting to rise, he's done the empirical work, rising to the order of three or four percent in in in, uh, in after inflation terms, uh, and employment rising at the same time, that's the prelude to a turning point because that then, along with the amount of money that bankers are that that bankers are getting out of uh, out of the level of private debt, uh, that's a deduction from profit, and that's when you start seeing a profit downturn. Right, and he's used that very nicely to pick. Uh, turning points in the American American economy, and also turns points in the stock market using an analysis just to to finish the plug. I'll just uh, go and check what his name is. Hang yeah. on a second, because he, I'm actually he, he subscribes to me on Patreon, and I thought I better return the favour. Right, but while you're looking uh, for his name, that's not happening right now, though, is it? Because it uh, is to some extent. Yes, but we're not seeing wage. I mean, wages are pretty flat. I mean, certainly in real terms, they're not growing at three percent. They're starting to take off in America, and part of the reason is because you're finally getting a tight enough labour market that rather than workers being able to demand wage rises because they have trade unions, which used to be the case in the past, because the trade union has been completely annihilated in America in the last 30 or 40 years, and workers, uh, actually to quote Paul Samuelson, are cowed by a uh, resurgent corporate culture. Um, and with, there's, there's no way workers are going to go knock on the do- on their boss's door and say, I want a wage rise, because what you get is a ticket out the door. Mm. Uh, but what actually gets to the point where they simply start running shorter staff and then to attract them in, then, then firms start offering higher wages to try to pull you know, yeah. the remaining pool of people uh, not in employment who are feasible for it into the workforce. So you, I think you're seeing a, see a, sh- a sudden sharp jump in the wages share happening in America, that seems to be occurring right now. And if that continues, then on this guy's analysis, which is based on my analysis, with a change of distribution of income, you'll have less investment taking place and the economy will start to slow down. So you're sounding like a central banker now, Steve. I hate to say that because you're saying, yes, we just need to, you know, the, the employment market is tightening. It just needs to, we just need to see evidence that wages are increasing and then, and then we, you know, that's when we have to moderate the economy. That's what central bankers say. You're off my Christmas list pretty quickly. No, but I mean, that's what you're saying though. You're saying exactly what they say. No, what I'm saying, yeah, there are not everything a central banker said is wrong, and what what they've been waiting for is the Phillips curve. This is the whole argument that there's a relationship between the level of economic activity and the level of inflation. And when you look at that argument, the uh, they they have bastardised it for a long time because they don't understand Phillips' own original research on this, where he was trying to build exactly the same sorts of dynamic models that I'm building now using Minsky. Um, but he did have this idea of a menu trade-off, which implied a stable trade-off between unemployment and uh, the rate of inflation. No, he wasn't talking about that at all. He's talking about a dynamic process where the capacity of particularly workers, but also raw materials producers, to get higher prices was a function of the, both the level of unemployment, which is an indicator of the level of economic activity, and its rate of change. And a third factor as well, which was uh, offshore offshore inflation. Um so that I've always accepted that particular concept, um, but when you when you look at it and say why hasn't that been a re- been rebound this time round? Partially, it's the depressing impact of the level of debt on on workers' incomes. There's a very direct relationship between the two, which again I've established using my complex systems approach and my Minsky software as well. I'm, I'm writing that right now for a, a French magazine on the issue of a debt jubilee. Um, 
So there's that, that dynamic going on which suppresses wage demands. But at the same time, what that means is you're going to go longer and longer into a booming economy before rising wage rises cut in right. because, it, because the workers can't do it. If there's trade unions, the workers could do it ahead of schedule and, and by demanding wage rises and there'd be a, a, a more gradual turning point in the economy. But the more we eliminate trade unions, the less bargaining power workers have, but they still have it when unemployment gets really, really tight. So I think we're going to see a spike in that inflation rate once the the, wages, not not a not a not a gradual increase, but a spike. Right. Once they feel confident that they can just walk into another job. So is it is it as simple as that then? Because it sounds like what you're saying, and I want to figure out how debt's fi- figuring this. But it sounds like what you're saying is okay. It reaches a point where there's so few jobs around that people can demand higher wages. Therefore, uh, the costs go up for companies, and all of a sudden their profits go down as a result because having to pay more. Some, some, yeah. And yeah. and and as a result of that, uh, we see the stock market crash, which actually we started to see obviously uh, tail end of last year, but it's bounced back completely since then. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also partly because the, cent- the central bank has, has decided to, they, they can't get out of QE. And that's something I argued about two or three years ago, that QE was a pact for the devil. Once you started doing it, you couldn't stop. Mm. Uh, and, and I think they've been through that process when they, when they, when they, you know, they deliberately pumped up QE to cause the stock market to rise. It did because they were buying a trillion dollars worth of bonds a year, giving financial institutions a trillion dollars worth of cash they had to put somewhere and they couldn't put it into bonds. So, duh, they bought shares. And that's a very obvious effect on the American market, a bit more subtle in other markets, but definitely on the American and uh, and then when they reverse it, bang! Well, if you if you if you if you're giving a trillion dollars worth of cash per year to uh, for people to buy them, get them to buy shares, when you start selling bonds back at thirty or fifty billion dollars per month. At, um, then they've That's got to sell saying. shares to buy them. Wow, the share prices fall. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and the, know, and the, the, the Fed are, aren't they, reviewing the, the, their path to uh, to, to the to easing their, their their balance sheet. In other words, uh, how quickly they're going to get rid of those bonds. But it sounds like you. I mean, how does how does debt figure in all of this then? Because this is you know, I mean, the last one. You know, we we certainly could blame the housing market, couldn't we? In particular, mm. the subprime in the United States. Uh, but how does that relate? To, to what you're saying in terms of, you know, really being driven by wages and costs for companies. This this is the point where complex systems thinking becomes important because this is something I didn't know uh, until I built complex systems models of the economy, including debt. And one of the uh, side effects that occurred out of this, and I'm, I'm writing this up right now for the, the French Jean movement, is that the rising level of price, even, even if you have the, the borrowing being done by the firms, therefore effectively by the capitalists, and borrow workers doing no borrowing at all, and even if all the borrowing is being done to actually build uh, factories rather than speculate on prices, which is what we actually see in the real world. Yeah. So that's, that's a good use of debt. Even with that situation, even though the capitalists are doing the borrowing, the group that pays for it in society are the workers. Their share of income falls while the level going to banks rise and capitalists remain pretty much in the middle. So this is a, and I've done I've done the work on the American data as well, and the the effect that I see in my simple model turns up in the American data as well. The higher the level of private debt, the lower workers' share of GDP, and of course, with that lower share of GDP, you're more in poverty. You're, you're less likely, even mm-hmm. though you even though you want to you you want to get a wage rise, you're less likely to demand it because you're already fragile. You don't want to lose that job. So this this is suppressed workers' capacity to demand wage rises, even though the level of employment itself is enhancing it right now. 
Right. So uh, as part of that shift to the finance sector, obviously you're getting rising inequality in society as well. Exactly. So, yeah, that's, so, that's part, part of it. So what do you think of this idea then? Robert Bauman, I don't know if you know him, he's professor of economics at Worcester. He says rising in income inequality uh, is a good predictor of a recession because the bottom 99% start uh, taking more financial risks because they want to try and avoid falling behind. So he says during the dot-com boom, uh, we had taxi drivers day trading internet stocks, uh, which they weren't terribly good at. And the years before the 2008 recession, people with low income borrowed more than they could afford, so they put it into housing and property. If we didn't have that inequality, people wouldn't take those risks. And the people who are taking the risks are the people, A, who are the least qualified to do it because they're, they're venturing into an area that they're not you know, familiar with. And secondly, uh, they're going to feel the hurt more because, uh, you know, because they don't have that buffer to support them. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's what I call a second-order effect, but it's genuinely there because when you are on the breadline or close to the breadline, then you're always trying to find a way to get more bread. Yeah. And the finance sector will seduce you with the idea you too can be a day trader. Little brackets down the bottom, your capital is at risk. Yeah. And, uh, and while the prices are going on, people get lulled into it and, and they, you know, they accept what the banks tell them about, yes, of course, you can't afford this house, but don't worry, when you run out of money to pay for it out of the 120% of the purchase price we've lent you, you can sell it for a profit and become join the American middle class. That's the, uh, that's the story they sold back then. And that certainly encourages people to take risks when they, when they shouldn't and when the risks depend upon trends which are unsustainable. So let's go back to some recessions then, mm. um, because the US, let's go back to Reagan's tax cuts. Because we had a recession just after that. And obviously, you know, they were criticized because they helped the rich. They shrank government spending. So they added to that rich poor gap. But I guess it also meant there was less government money around. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of so less government spending and uh, rising differentials in, uh, in income. Uh, are, they, are they the key ingredients? I mean, to, well, they're to- some of the key ingredients. I mean, when, when you look at what's happening. Uh, I mean, the American economy, uh, it's partly having my focus upon credit and debt, of course, um, but it's also um, looking at the impact of the Federal Reserve trying to return to what they thought was normality in the uh, the interest rates as well. Because remember, the people back to the central banks where they're wrong, uh, particularly in the Federal Reserve in the United States, where they're dominated by neoclassical DSGE models and how they think the economy functions. They don't have the financial sector in there at all, mm. except as sources of now, now they might have them as sources of frictions that slow down a return to equilibrium. They don't see them as a destabilizing factor. And their magic numbers, as I've sort of said many times, two, three, and four, they expect to see a, uh, a 2% rate of inflation, a 3% rate of economic growth, and a 4% r- rate of interest. And those are the numbers they're trying to get back to now. They're putting up a 4% rate of interest when the economy already goes 1.5 times GDP as a private debt level. That, I expected, would push people back into into deleveraging again. Credit would go from being relatively anemic now, but positive, back to negative again. And when it went negative, bang, we'd be back having another recession. And this is the pattern which Japan has repeated ever since it hit its crisis back in 1990. So that's that's the underlying story that I see is going wrong with the American economy. But, of course, we have other issues, particularly in Europe, uh, which in, in some ways boggle the mind because talk about own goals. Well, let's talk about our own goals. The- Germany. 
Yeah. What on earth is well, Germany doing having a recession? Well, I mean, well, how can Germany have a recession when it's got such a, a positive balance of trade? Its interest rate is zero, so there's nothing the central bank can do apart from go into negative territory, which obviously the whole of Europe has generally. Um, but how the hell can you have a recession in those circumstances? Because the, 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 the whole focus on what they see is hard money, and this is they think this is this, this is the source of the troubles. When you have hard money, you have a soft economy, and they they believe that they should uh, you know have as, as little borrowing as money in the private sector, which they can manage because they have a huge trade surplus, as little government spending, so they're running a government surplus at the same time, and that's counteracting the impact of the trade surplus that they're running. So the trade surplus alone, which is about 10% of GDP, if they weren't paranoid about the level of government spending, uh, would be giving them a substantial positive boost to the economy. But because they're paranoid about government spending, they're using the trade surplus effectively to, to reduce government debt, which is already trivial uh, in their case. And and, um, and the private sector is not borrowing either. So you've got, in terms of the supplies of cash into the economy, the only positive coming in is the trade surplus. The rest is negative, uh, paying down private debt, paying down government debt. And lo and behold, they've managed to generate an, a recession in the country that's by far doing best out of the existence of the euro. Oh, yeah, but, you know, you've got to make the people feel it. You've got to go through hard times so you can appreciate the good times. Isn't that what, <laughs> isn't, isn't that what it's all about? You know, you've got to control the money. You haven't but, been to many German parties <laughs> outside Berlin anyway. I'm, I'm sure you have, and we don't, really don't want to know. But let's look at the United States because uh, just that you've already put I don't you don't even need to describe it. And I've got a nasty picture in my mind already. Let's look at the United States because they're doing the opposite, aren't they? I mean, Trump is, is quite Keynesian, really, in his approach in some ways. Then, But, you know, they're not at the stage of a recession yet they do have that tightening labor market that you've been that they've been talking about we also got the gig economy though let's remember let's remember that as a, another factor and, and automation and artificial intelligence and all those other factors which are driving stuff but their economy seems to be doing better than most so is sort of trump's approach helped here and you know really aren't do you think there will be a recession there well, I think it's going to be triggered by the Federal Reserve this time around. And in that sense, you know, Trump is like Reagan was, the ultimate Keynesian, in the sense that he's doing huge government spending and couldn't care about the scale of the deficit. Um, but, of course, it's been done predominantly by cutting taxes for the rich, so you don't yeah. get quite the boost out of it that you get if that was used to increase unemployment benefits or to increase welfare or, you know, spend more on roads and houses and schools and so on. Uh, that would give you more of a direct boost to the economy. But he's still on the government side stimulating the economy. You had the trade deficit taking money out of the American economy, but, of course, that's not a problem for the American economy itself because it can produce dollars domestically. Um, but if you have... Um, if you, you have the level of credit debt being where it is for the private sector and anemic credit demand, then you've got sort of two positives and one negative. Now, that can keep you going for a while so long as those two positives remain positive, government spending and, 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 uh, the tra- and growth in credit counterbalancing a, a trade deficit, which is less important for America than other countries. When you have, if, if, the, if, the, Fed, if the Fed does continue putting rates up, then what they're doing is they're, they're, they're pretty close to triggering the private sector to start deleveraging already with the level that rates have risen to. And once they go back into deleveraging, you've got two negatives and one positive, the government spending versus a, a trade deficit and private sector deleveraging. And I think that'll be enough to put them, if not into a recession, then into a fairly substantial slump. But if they, and, but if they don't, aren't they just going to create another asset bubble which is going to make it worse when it does happen? 
Yeah, even asset bubbles, I think, are less, less likely. I mean, because, again, the asset bubbles depend upon credit growing uh, growing faster every year. And that seems to, again, seems to have stalled in the US. Uh, it's running at uh, pretty much about zero right now, the, the rate of change of, of mortgage, of household credit. So... Um, it's, to me, it's it's that's why I think this particular crisis, the, the overall milieu is set by the fact they've got the highest level of private debt during a recovery in America's history, and that's just mm. the, that, you know, the data. The level of private debt in America dropped down to about 148% of GDP after peaking at 170% during 2009. It's now running at about 150 151%. Now, to get a recovery from that level of debt out of credit, uh, then you, you're just going to need an, another dramatic acceleration on the level of private debt to get it, and I can't see that happening in the American economy after what they've been through. And is that so is that is that is that debt household debt or is that company debt? And the reason I ask that question is because obviously you know a big contrib- contributor, well, the real cause of the last uh, the last recession was because of uh, was because of household debt. It was people taking out mortgages that they they couldn't afford thanks to the finance sector giving it to them but uh, but this time it seems like you know there's a there's a lot of money being borrowed by companies so let me give you so the McKinsey Global Institute for example reckons that the value of corporate bonds has risen from 3 trillion dollars uh, has sorry has risen 3 trillion dollars since 2007 it's gone from about 16% of gdp to 25% so companies are issuing more bonds uh, I guess because interest rates are low. So just like people took out mortgages last time when they're affordable, I wonder whether this time they're using it to to prop up business. And as you say, the problem then becomes when those businesses find that they're less profitable because of this tightening labour market, then the uh, house of cards starts to fall. Yeah, and this is it's more of a business-style recession this time than a yeah. household recession. If you look at the, uh, the data on that front, the American household private debt ratio peaked at 100% of GDP back in 2008 and has now fallen to about 70%, um, 75%. The business debt is now higher than it was as a proportion of GDP during the financial crisis. So it's now pretty much the same level as household debt. They're both about 75% of GDP. Uh, and that's a lower level of debt for the household sector, down about 25%, but a higher level for the corporate sector over the over the peak it reached in the financial crisis. So again, that means that investment decisions of corporations are, are much more important in this downturn than they were in the 2008 downturn, which predominantly came out of the household sector, just going from positive to negative credit on a big scale. Yeah. Uh, this time round, if they if they start realising they're not making the profits they expected, not getting the results they wanted then the level of investment's going to fall and that will bring the economy down. Yeah, or they go the other way and they go, well, okay, let's let's borrow more uh, just because, I mean, if we borrow more, we can invest more, therefore we can go for growth and that's so long as we're doing that, that's going to help our, no, uh, our share those, price. Not that they see their, their bond rates rising. And that's yeah. what they'll think they'll be seeing. Yeah. If, if the if Federal Reserve Fed- because I'm putting up rates, they will. Yeah. And and that's the Federal Reserve starting to pull back on that one. But I, to me, if I had to say what they're going to be the trigger – trigger for a crisis in America, a recession in America, not a crisis, but a recession. It's the Federal Reserve putting up rates in the belief they're stabilising the economy. And they'll be fooled by, if, if the wage spike comes along, then they will see that it's necessary to put up the inflation interest rate to fight the rate of inflation. And according to their models, with their tailor, well, they've pretty much got to put up interest rates twice as fast as wages are rising. So there may be, a, you know, a, 
but, but I've got a feeling that the data is looking so fragile overall. I think they'll end up sitting on their hands in much the way the Australian Central Bank has done for the last decade. Yeah, well, it sounds like everyone's doing that. They're giving, uh, obviously, very complex expla- explanations as to why that is. But by and large, it's because they haven't got a clue what's going on, isn't it? Pretty much, because again, they're leaving out they're leaving out one of the core changing elements. And there's there's a large debate going on in the classic area of modern monetary theory on the web right now. Um, and of course, I've got my points of agreement and disagreement with MMT. But fundamentally, the awareness that MMT people have of the role of money in the economy and the capacity of government to create it, and then when impact when the government doesn't, when the private sector does, and so on. Uh, that's that's a level of realism that grounds you in what's actually happening in the real world. When you ask a Federal Reserve economist what's going on in the economy, they tell you what's going on in their model of the economy, which leaves those factors out. And for that reason, I think they're going to they're stumbling blind. They really, the, what the beast that they have, which is the models they have of the economy, is not performing like the economy they're in. And they keep having to correct their data all the time. And they, and they end up sort of, you know, they, they have the confidence of somebody whose model doesn't predict what happens. Um, but they've got to nonetheless use the model because that's what they get paid to do. So in the US then, uh, people are buying equities, as we're seeing, because they are at record highs. They went down, but then they bounced back up again pretty quickly. You know, a month later, they're back up where they were before, a, a sizable drop in the United States. As I've said, there's this big move to corporate bonds. So we've almost got a corporate debt bubble growing, but what's going to make that pop is not, but the fact that it's got so large, there's, always, there's still got to be a trigger for it. And you're saying the trigger is going to be because of uh, wages are going to grow. And presumably as wages grow, that's going to push inflation up. And that's going to cause the central bank to, to react and push up interest rates, which is going to make uh, all those corporate bonds and, and corporate borrowing far less attractive. Yeah, I think that's a pretty, pretty good summary. That's my expectation for the states. And I think it'll play out in the next year or two. I don't think it'll wait till 2021. I think it's more likely to happen around 2020, which could make for a really fun election campaign. Yeah, you'll, you'll, we'll love that. We'll we'll love watching the smile come off his face. But what no, about not just that? Is it, it's the insults to dream up for the Federal Reserve Chairman? Well, of course, it will be the it will be the Fed's fault. I mean, he's already positioning for that. Well, isn't well, it? it'll be it'll be it'll be what Titan and Ted. What's he? I've got to look up the first name of the, whoever chair. You know, it used to be Ben and 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 uh, and. It's, Alan Jer- now. it's Jerome now, isn't it? Jerome. Jerome. Yeah. Uh, jerky Jerome. There you go. <laughs> jerky Jerome. Jerking the economy around. So uh, Powell. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, don't know. No. We could go. <laughs> now, what about uh, what about the UK then? I mean, the UK sort of feels as though it's a long way from recession, unless we have a, a Brexit-induced recession. But you, you're not going to say that's going to happen because you think. Brexit's the best thing that's ever happened to Britain. Very funny. Uh, <laughs> I think it could have been the best thing that happened to the European Union if it was ever properly managed, but it's been a disaster on both sides. So, so what's going to cause... Right. Re- okay, so what's going... We won't get onto that now, though. What's going to yeah. cause recession in the UK, then? Again, again, that's the same basic story, the excessive yeah. level of private debt and, uh, and the fact that any recovery can be stifled by rate rises. But I don't think it's going to happen. I think I think the... Um, I, don't, I can't see the central bank... Of, of the UK putting up rates in the same way that the American central bank has done. They just aren't that confident. So um, I think it'll be sort of stumbled along for the UK and in low levels of growth, but not a, not a plunge into recession. Uh, right. To me, that's more what you're likely to see in countries like Italy, uh, courtesy of the euro. And then uh, the US for the Federal Reserve and the the non-zombie, the, 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 what I call the zombies to be, countries like Australia and Canada, which bubbled their way through the financial crisis 
could have done so at the cost of an enormous increase in their debt levels. Right. What about China? Because China yeah. could also be a bubble, couldn't it? Because we've become so dependent on it for growth, particularly countries like Australia. So if we see Chinese growth slow, I mean, it's still growing at a phenomenal rate, but the rate of that growth is slowing. Uh, then business worldwide slows. I mean, we've already seen that, haven't we? With this, with this trade dispute between China and the United States, there's definitely been a, uh, a reduction in international trade, not just between those two countries, other countries as well. So, uh, so that shows what happens when trade slows. So, if China's demand falls, could that aggravate the situation and cause recession? I think it could. I mean, this is China, China's demand has been absolutely enormous. And again, people, uh, I think we were conscious of the extent to which China has kept the global economy afloat. One, one of the curious statistics I've seen, and you've already seen it as well, is that the amount of coal that, uh, those coal, the amount of uh, concrete that China has purchased in the last three years mm. exceed the amount of concrete that was laid, laid um, in America in the last century. So there's an enormous infrastructure development going on, and in some ways they're powering their economy twofold. One, one because they, um, they, they, they can't leave out the massive industrialization they've done. That's in, absolutely critical because they have, have built you know, the world's factory effectively in China, everything except uh, semiconductors they, and nuclear power stations. Well, actually, they probably make nuclear power stations, but everything that's semiconductors, they seem to be able to make themselves. Um, so that's, that's given us a, a huge boost to the economy in terms of demand for inputs for all that. Uh, but, of course, it's also relocated manufacturing from many of the advanced, Amer- advanced economies like America to China. Uh, so it's been, an, it's been a double way, double way for those countries, been a one-way one way ticket for success for raw materials producers like Australia and Canada. Uh, but that has come at the cost of an enormous increase in private debt. Uh, just to give you an idea, China was running at about 120% of GDP as its private debt level in 2008, and it's now 210%. It's spent virtually an entire year's growing GDP uh, in the last decade, and that was a deliberate government decision to boost demand that way. And now that they're, that's, that's caused, we, we know all the, the, the ghost cities of, of, uh, of China, and uh, there's a, just a ridiculous level of oversupply of both office space and housing in China now. So the, that is coming to an end to some extent uh, because the people who borrowed the money to build that are now going bankrupt and writing off their debts. And you've seen, you've seen riots by Chinese investors uh, outside property companies when the property companies reduce the prices for new people buying into condominiums and so on. So that's getting pretty tricky. At the same time, the government's been doing a gigantic and very effective uh, program of infrastructure development. They're fast, you know, high-speed rail all across the country, um, the fastest rate of growth of, of uh, non-carbon-based energy production on the planet. They're still building lots of coal-fired power stations as well. Um, a lot of this, the government side of things, I think they can get away with indefinitely as long as they run a trade surplus. Mm. But the private stuff is falling over now, and if it were not for the scale of the um, of the government spending, I think they're already being in a serious recession. So, right, but, but, but they are a long way from a recession if you look at their growth rate. So that growth rate is entirely propped up by government spending. Uh, hang on a sec. No, no, you don't, the most important indicator is China is not the growth rate, it's the unemployment rate. Mm. And that is 4.09% and has been for the last 10 years. And if you believe that, <laughs> I've got a palace to sell you. Uh, the, you can't trust the Chinese official data. I, I, every time I get asked in the surveys by the, the City Morning Herald and 
the, uh, the new daily in Australia, I just – if they give me an option, I write two numbers. But if they don't, I simply copy whatever the Chinese party puts out as its net projection. I know that they'll hit it to within one, one decimal place. Um, but it's fiction. Uh, you, the real indicators, and this is what a lot of um, much better funded um, – equity uh, private equity groups than, than I am can manage to do they track things like electricity consumption and that gives you a much better idea of what's actually happening in the economy and those don't look anywhere near as rosy as their rate of growth so countries but far lower so commodity countries like Australia and Canada then where there are high levels of private debt in both in both instances I guess that's mm. because people have have spent up because of the good times they've uh, you know bought bigger houses and the like so uh, we get uh, a, a fall in demand for those commodities prices of those commodities goes down so you're getting less money for selling less uh so less money coming into the economy uh join the dots between that happening and recession starting well it's about australia and um and Canada have both had enormous property bubbles as well. And a lot of that's uh, part of the motive force that has come from Chinese buyers because the two countries, they're quite cute. You could actually sort of flip them around as as, as sort of global twins. Yeah, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but just rotate them around the axis of Beijing. Uh, and you've got, you've got, you know, pretty much <laughs> a slightly smaller Canada, a slightly larger Australia. They both sell minerals to, uh, to China. Um, both Anglo-Saxon, et cetera, et cetera. They're all caught up in property bubbles as well. And the the Australian property bubble has clearly burst already yeah. and is bursting very dramatically, very quickly. The Canadian one is coming unstuck at the same time and credit is now heading down towards uh, zero levels again once more. Uh, and that's that, that means they're going to have the type of bust that they managed to avoid by borrowing their way through the global financial crisis back in 2008. So I expect those, definitely Australia and Canada, to have uh, property bubble bursting induced recessions when credit uh, turns negative. And it's already, it's negative in in Canada right now. And I'll just check what's happened in Australia. Hang on a second. Having some other database here. I love it. It's almost like a real time podcast, isn't it? Really, you. Uh, this is where Steve gets me to to, to practice my filling in skills uh, <laughs> while he goes off. Just why are you doing it? Go and get yourself a cup of coffee and uh, oh, you come know, on. Look at the computer. Play- it's, it's, it's speed of software. It takes a lot of speed up. <laughs> <laughs> but Australia's heading towards negative credit at the moment. It's uh, it, like peak credit in Australia uh, was way back in the seventies at ten percent of GDP. Nothing, not quite the same scale as. Uh, mm. As, as in America, um, but it was still pretty high all the way through the global financial crisis and so on. Uh, now the, the rate of change of credit uh, is hitting down towards going strongly negative and credit itself is falling towards zero. Right. So I've got a feeling they're um, – uh, hang on, I'm looking at the two, look, oh my God, real time and I misread some of my own indicators. So the peak level of credit in Australia was actually – just before the financial crisis, and it was 24% of GDP. It's now, uh, it, it rose once more, uh, courtesy of all the bubbles that the Reserve Bank blew and the China bubble as well, to about 15% of GDP. It's now running down at about 7% and falling, right. while the, the change in the credit is actually negative. So I think Australia's in for a good, solid uh, crisis. I just hope it starts happening before the Labor Party gets into office and gets <laughs> blamed for it again. <laughs> it's normally the way, isn't it? Okay, couple of quick questions to finish with then. Mm. Is there, and this is sort of like a populist journalist question who doesn't know anything about economics, can recessions be caused by people talking about recessions? 
So, uh, so you get equity markets. Uh, you know, they look at the the reading of consumer and business sentiment that drives down investments. So it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. It's feasible, but it, it's uh, it's more likely to happen when you're when you're in a fragile state. And this is yeah. the this is why I say the level of private debt is an indicator of how fragile your economy is. The higher it is, the more fragile you are. So it might just expedite it. In other words, it's expedite good. because it leads you to making a decision not to borrow that money, and then bang, that has much more of an impact now than it would have had back in the nineteen fifties, yeah. when credit was a much smaller part of demand. So it, it, it is an issue. But to to me, the the main thing is the structural one, and on that front. Uh, I think the global economy is in for a long period of occasional recoveries and then lengthy stagnations, which is exactly what Japan did. And I'll use the classic phrase from, uh, uh, it's, not, it's not the cure, it's the, who, who wrote um, uh, uh, Turning Japanese? Uh, the vapors. The vapors, yeah. Mm. So we're we're imbibing the vapors and turning Japanese. And yes, I know the double meaning of that song. One of these people was a music jock years ago. Can you spot which one it was? Uh, look, this. <laughs> let's start with the first question: the trade war uh, that we're seeing right now, uh, and this rise in protectionism. Is that going to help or hinder this uh, path towards a recession? That could that could help to some degree, and not as much as. Uh, as, help cause it. Not enough no. to cause it, but certainly it, it, it's, it's, it's going to take a wing out of, the, out of the demand, you know, for Chinese goods in the first instance selling to America. But equally, it's going to cause investment in America to try to make up for the goods they can't currently produce they're bringing in from China, which is a very long process. Yeah, well, it's not started, that's for sure. I mean, quite the opposite, isn't it? We're seeing less investment now happening now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, I think it's a trade war would, would be an amplifying element, but it also comes down to just how much, you know, in terms of we, 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 our GDP is measured initially in money and the main source of new money is credit. So it's also what's going to happen to credit, courtesy of that. Now, uh, yes, negative if you have companies which are relying upon buying cheap Chinese inputs and have to pay a higher price and can't pay for the inputs and can't pay pass that price on to their consumers, then they're going to be constrained that way. But equally, if you have companies which like steel companies and so on, and which now find that they've got a 25% price advantage they didn't have previously over Chinese, uh, and they're looking at the level of instability of Donald Trump as well and thinking how much longer is this going to go on for, uh, then this might be, well, we've got no choice but to invest. So in that sense, sometimes these things can actually stimulate the economy rather than bringing it unstuck. All right. Look, next time we talked a lot about interest rates and uh, the influence of central banks on all of this. I want to talk more about interest rates next time. Uh, so perhaps sort of picking up where, we, uh, where we're where we leaving off today. So uh, for now, thank you, Steve. Welcome. So join us for that one. That is the next Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening today. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.